I'm very delighted uh, to introduce today Professor Harry Sumnall. He's Professor in Substance Use at the Center for Public Health at Liverpool John Moores University. Uh, he is interested in all aspects of substance use, particularly young people's health issues. His funded research programs have examined the evidence base for substance misuse prevention and the mechanisms for implementing evidence-based practice and policy. Harry is also, also has research interests in psychopharmacology and addictive behaviors with a focus upon causes, consequences, and experiences of drug use. He's interested in the psychopharmacology of entactogens. Mm -hmm. Did I say that right? Yep. Entactogens and hallucinogens. Familiar with what those are. And the developing field of new psychoactive substances or legal highs. He is a member of the UK Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs and president for the European Society of Prevention Research. And I think he'll probably mention the conference that uh, Francis is also interested in organizing something for. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Professor Sumnall to present on novel psychoactive substances in the UK, a new pattern of drug use. Thank you. Well, thanks very much for that kind introduction. Uh, I have a lot to get through, so you'll have to forgive me if I do skip over a couple of slides. Uh, Sean was telling me that Colin Brewer went through his talk in 40 minutes, so I'll try and aim for 40 minutes, if that's okay. It's 40 minutes, I'll keep, right? Yeah, I'll keep you to it, too. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah. Okay, so I've already had a nice introduction. Uh, two things I should mention. European Society for Prevention Research. This is a bit of an advert now. I don't get paid a fee, so I'm allowed to give this advert. Uh, this is a, a relatively new society modelled uh, on the US Society for Prevention Research. Relatively new, we've been in existence for three or four years. We have uh, our annual conference in Palma, Mallorca this year, and we've had Frances Gardner, she spoke at the last conference and she supported us. Uh, the topic this year is around the economics of prevention, trying to understand methodologies and implications of economic research and prevention, but also trying to understand the societal value of prevention as well. And I know perhaps that's a topic which, you've in, which is of interest to this group, so uh, check out our website and it would be good to see you, some of you at the conference this year. Okay, I promise there's no more efforts. <laughs> Uh, I am a member of the UK Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, the ACMD. For, you, for those of you who don't know, this is an independent organisation which is tasked to review the evidence around substance use harms and make recommendations to government via the Home Office and up to the Home Secretary about what drug law should be, drug classifications, but also, I think more interestingly, well, at least to me, make recommendations around interventions and policy responses as well. Uh, ACMD is sometimes involved in controversy, uh, if any of you are aware of the career history of Professor David Nutt, for example, and realise that's the case, uh, but also do lots of interesting stuff, and uh, one of the things I'm interested in in the ACMD is uh, working on their working group around novel psychoactive substances. Now, obviously this is a new policy area, it's a new phenomenon really, although I'll argue in a second it's not that new. Uh, but it, it, it's kind of interesting, even from a personal and academic perspective, that we're really at the beginning uh, of a field which is emerging now. So it's, it's, you know, it's quite exciting to see how this is developing as a social issue, as a scientific issue, as a policy issue. So it's, you know, it's, it's almost in a, uh, a weird sense a privilege to be involved in this research at this point in time. You know, this is why we do research. We want to be involved. We want to be inspired about it. So in this talk, I'm going to go through, uh, th these are my main objectives. I'll, hopefully I'll be able to cover most of those. Uh, I think 
First of all, I'm going to start off with to talk about and explore whether there's actually been a change in the nature of drug use in young people in the UK, particularly in young people in the UK. And I'm primarily going to be talking about non-dependent patterns of drug use, although the interface between so-called recreational use and problematic use is, of course, very blurred. Uh, I'll talk about the impact of the emergence of novel psychoactive substances, particularly on policy developments and how policy has responded. I would like to be able to talk about how drug services have responded in developing interventions to this, but it's such a new area and there's such little research and evidence around it, so that'd be a very, very short component of this talk, so apologies for that. Uh, and I know as a department and researchers you'd be perhaps interested in that side of thing, but it's, it's such a new area, there's not a huge amount to say about that aspect. Okay, so rather than present millions and millions of graphs and tables around uh, exploring patterns of substance use in the UK, I thought to try and summarise it in a, in a quick table. Now, surprisingly enough, uh, despite popular and media portrayals of young people's lives and behaviours, since the mid-90s there's been quite a substantial decrease in the use of most substances in, in this country, particularly in general, when assessed through general population surveys and in young people. We have seen an increase in cocaine, and I'll talk about that in a second, but lots of other types of drugs, ecstasy, hallucinogenic drugs, amphetamines, cannabis, which is mainly driving uh, 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 the significant decreases, have actually fallen. Why this is happening, of course, is a big, big question. Lots of people are trying to claim credit for this, but we simply don't know why drug use has been decreasing. If you ask a politician, they will say it's because the drug laws are working, uh, drug policy is effective. But to be honest, we don't know. Nobody's actually looked into this. And I'm reminded of some recent analyses in the USA, which have looked at the incidence of crack cocaine use. and and. They're offering similar sorts of, uh, uh, you know, more in-depth analysis, but similar sorts of conclusions. There's lots of agencies and organisations are claiming credit for this, but we simply don't know why these changes are happening in substance use. Some speculative reasons, ceiling effects, use was so high in the mid-90s because of real changes in youth culture, particularly around clubbing and raves and the rise of ecstasy culture, that you could almost say, well, drug use prevalence had nowhere else to go apart from down, because it, it, was, it couldn't be sustained at those high levels. Perhaps there's changes in leisure time preferences. Uh, people talk about social media, situation leisure time onto social media rather than face-to-face -face interactions. I don't know, that might have something to do with it. International policies, uh, colleagues in the Foreign Office, of course, are saying it's due to international co cooperation that this has happened. Same with colleagues at the Home Office, they would argue that it's a sustained effect of 20 years or so of drug policy. We just simply don't know. I would like to think that drug use is falling because of effective education and interventions, but alas, the reality is that in the UK we have very, very few evidence-based drugs education interventions for young people and very little evaluation into the effectiveness into that and I think talking about that area in particular we could give a whole seminar series on it the sad reality is is that funding for drugs education and drugs prevention <coughs> interventions in the UK is probably at its lowest point as it has been in the last 30 or 40 years there are some gaps in the picture uh, most of the data we have 
most of the data around patterns of drug use or trying to understand drug using behaviour, there are some exceptions, but mostly it's on adults in treatment and criminal justice services. They're a so-called captive population, so it's understandable that we, we can uh, do a lot of research with them and understand these issues. But really, you know, looking at the general population surveys, we, we can understand a bit about general patterns of use, period prevalence and such things, but, and that's okay for headlines, so uh, politicians can say, yes, we're achieving our objectives, lifetime prevalence is going down. But, you know, to be honest, thinking about developing interventions and thinking about smart policies, that sort of data is insufficient. We really need to get into the detail to try and understand use behaviours, use repertoires, transitions from different types of drugs and different types of behaviours. We're trying to learn about the context of use. I was talking to uh, somebody before who was, who was talking about the environment of use and you know how the environment of drug use might influence risk taking and the consequences of use. We don't have data about these fundamental issues. That's unfortunate. We are, though, good in the UK at, uh, at these small targeted surveys. And in relation to novel psychoactives, we have some useful data conducted in places such as nightclubs or, or some street surveys, some high street surveys. But real issues about generalizability. Uh, and the study of uh, novel psychoactives, which I'm going to go on to in a second, poses additional challenges over and above these uh, that I've presented here, and I'll talk about that a bit later on. Uh, I always like to, a lot of my research is, is European in focus, so I, th I think it's interesting and useful to try and put substance uh, uh, use in the UK in a European context, to actually you know, give a school report, see how we're doing against other European countries. And unsurprisingly, uh, we don't do very well with regards to indicators of uh, uh, education or child well-being, but you know, I think we can claim we're the best in Europe at taking drugs. Uh, whether that's a good or bad thing, I don't know. Uh, but if we look at trends in long uh, lifetime, sorry, last year prevalence of cannabis in this case, uh, the UK reporting some of the highest levels of, of cannabis use. Uh, it has been falling, as you can see here, compared to other countries. And there's been some interesting analysis done by the European Monitoring Centre in Lisbon, which has shown that, yes, there's these really diverse patterns of substance use, but none of them are really related to changes in fundamental changes in national policy and drug law. So there's interesting patterns happening across different European states. But again, we don't really know why this is, why this is occurring. What is interesting though, and I mentioned on the first slide, is that cocaine use seems to be increasing. And this is powdered cocaine rather than crack cocaine. Again, looking at the UK, we've seen a gradual increase, and cocaine is now the second most popular illegal drug in the UK. It used to be amphetamines, then it was ec ecstasy, and now it's cocaine. But what does seem to be happening in general is in those countries where there's traditionally been high levels of use, such as Spain and Portugal, which are importation centres, use does seem to be decreasing somewhat. That's quite interesting and it does suggest that perhaps there's some international changes with regards to trafficking. Uh, based in Liverpool, one of our claim to fames, uh, uh, as well as having a, a, a perennially underperforming football team is that we're a cocaine importation hub. <laughs> so it does seem to be that the importation hubs into Europe are changing. And it's an interesting, quite interesting studies which have actually looked at the changes in drug markets in the UK, particularly around cocaine. 
with uh, uh, organized crime and criminals in Liverpool making direct contacts with some of the cartels in South America, which never used to happen before. Some interesting changes. So I, I suppose the point of this is to say that international drug markets are complex and they're always changing. So once you think you have a grasp of it, things change. And I think this is clearly il illustrated through the rise of novel psychoactive substances. Okay, so in general, I've already stated we need to be careful about the gaps in the data, but and I think we can argue that, that the declining use of these so-called classical legal drugs is welcomed, uh, but what is perhaps now more of a concern is the rise of the availability, use, and potential harms of so-called novel psychoactive substances. And with regards to priorities in the UK, Although national drugs policy is, of course, still focused on class A drug use and developing treatments and intervention for, tr for class A drug use, increasingly political and policy attention is being placed on these new types of substance misuse. And there is a perception that although substance use is declining, uh, it's, uh, uh, the gap has been, taken, has been taken up by use of these substances. But we have to be very cautious because we have very little robust evidence around use. It's a very new field and a lot of it's speculative. It's important for me to point that out. Sorry this is a busy slide, but I thought it was important for me to define what I mean by novel psychoactive substances. In the newspapers and the media, you often hear about so-called legal highs or research chemicals and things like that. I don't really like the term legal highs because quite often people are buying legal highs, which they think are legal, but quite often they contain illegal compounds. In our lab in Liverpool, we've been doing systematic analysis and market monitoring, buying products. Nine times out of ten, what we're buying online is an illegal product. Uh, so I don't really like the term legal high. It also has other connotations as well with regards to how we respond to it, and perhaps also societal perceptions about those substances. So I always try to use this term. It's a bit of a mouthful, novel psychoactive substances. So I'm going to refer to them as NPS. So the formal definition is that these are emerging substances that are used for psychotropic effects that are not subject to control under the, all the different United Nations conventions. Uh, this is where it gets complex. That internationally, they might not be controlled, but some of these substances might be controlled under national laws. Mm. So an example is methadrone, which can be considered an archetypal novel psychoactive substance. First emerged in the UK around about 2006. It was controlled under the Misuse of Drugs Act in 2010, but it's not controlled under uh, international conventions. So it's quite a complex situation. But I suppose the main point to take away from this slide is that we now have more detections of novel psychoactive substances than substances controlled under the United Nations conventions. So I think, if I, just off the top of my head, there's around about 300 uh, drugs which are controlled under the United Nations conventions, and the EMCDDA reports there's about 320 novel psychoactives. So you know, the whole focus has changed, really, and kind of suggests that the United Nations conventions aren't keeping up. So why do these substances exist? Well, uh, th these are my thoughts. There hasn't really been an in-depth analysis of user motivations. I think that's an important research gap. The most obvious one to me, of course, is to bypass national and international laws regulating drug use, so avoiding prosecution for users and sellers. 
this, this is important, I think, from different aspects, particularly if we think about what type of groups and individuals might choose to use these substances. There's been a few surveys and some of the most frequently reported reasons are related to legal status. The fact that people want to experience different states of consciousness. They want to experience different drug effects, but they still don't want to break the law. And this is a particularly pertinent issue for people in, uh, in, in particular professions, people who are perhaps in, in uh, uh, contact with the criminal justice system. In Liverpool, we're in discussions with our local service providers around low and medium secure units where they're having a real issue with these substances because they have very robust policies around classic illegal drugs, but their policies, their local NHS policies, don't cover these novel substances. So they're having a bit of the issues in the clinics there around them. And of course, why these drugs are appearing is a result of advances and discoveries in academic and industrial chemistry. So basically it's the university's fault that these drugs <laughs> have appeared. And it's interesting to think about how novel psychoactive substances are entering the UK market. Uh, you know, uh, uh, scientific literature is filled with uh, new chemical discoveries. This was this was a publication from a colleague by mine who was looking, who'd uh, come up with, and designed and developed some new hallucinogenic substances related to LSD. Of course, as scientists, we published these. Uh, soon after, in specialist forums, people were discussing these compounds, you know, saying, have you seen this new paper by Brent et al. talking about this new hallucinogenic compound? Uh, this is one particular forum called Blacklight, which is a members only. You have to be screened and uh, pass the membership criteria. So I said I, you know, I was interested in these compounds really high level of sophistication talking about this. Now these are individuals who aren't interested in profiting from substance use by selling drugs or anything like that. They're interested in chemistry, they're interested in psychology, interested in psychopharmacology, and they're interested in, in how the field might develop. But then of course, uh, uh, at some point the word gets out. Now this was an interesting uh, uh, article which appeared in Vice magazine, which usually discusses rather frivolous aspects of popular culture. Uh, this guy Hamilton Morris, he's a drugs writer, popular drugs writer, he published an interview with a ketamine chemist, and this chemist, uh, he, he suffered, uh, I think it was a painful work-related injury, and so decided to develop uh, uh, different analgesics, and he came up one of the methoxetamine, uh, which was subsequently marketed as an alternative to ketamine, a, a so-called bladder-friendly version of ketamine because there were some worries about the effects of ketamine on the bladder. Uh, mentioned in this article, you know, he, the, the chemist talks about how he was interested in it for personal reasons, he was interested in the chemistry and health medication. Soon afterwards, uh, uh, you couldn't move the ketamine on the, on, the, on the street, sorry, methoxetamine. Then there's a more popular discussion. At some point, we're not sure quite how, discussion of these drugs enters perhaps a more mainstream discussion. This is one very popular open forum called Blue Light. High level of uh, 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 knowledge and insight into these issues. But this is really where these drugs move from perhaps an academic interest, potentially to substances which will then be used and abused on the streets. Uh, people talk about experiences, uh, people talk about how to source the chemicals, 
and uh, a journalist called Mike Power, writing for The Guardian, actually designed and developed a new drug, you know, a guy with absolutely no chemical knowledge himself. He gained sufficient understanding from reading forums such as this that he was able to place a large order for a new hallucinogenic drug from China that subsequently appeared, and he could have made lots of money from that. Uh, so it's very interesting to see how these drugs enter the market. Uh, eventually, of course, they end up in... Uh, uh, we're seeing these more and more websites or head shops. I think this is one based in Oxford. The Red Eye Head Shop, open seven days a week, 10 till 6. Uh, uh, this is a local one. It's not particularly sophisticated. Uh, some of the uh, more major ones uh, are, are, you know, pretty much the Amazon of legal high of research chemicals. Uh, you notice here, uh, very very small uh, uh, logo at the top to try and declare some element of social corporate responsibility. Maybe under 18s aren't allowed. How they actually check that, I don't know and the Alternative Trade Association, which is this very informal association, uh, self-regulation around research chemicals, highly ineffective. And, uh, you know, it, it's just interesting that particularly with regards to development of online commerce, how research chemicals and novel psychoactives have really, really been taken up with great enthusiasm by such businesses. If you are interested in perhaps in some of those issues. I'm not going to focus on them too much. Uh, there's some interesting textbooks and texts out there. Uh, there's one on the left by Dargan and Wood, Novel Psychoactive Substances. This is more around the pharmacology and toxicology. I wrote about the epidemiology in here, so that's more of a technical one. ACMD have done several reports around these substances, again, perhaps around the pharmacology, but also including some toxicity in there as well and some legal aspects. A uh, very interesting t uh, book by Mike Power, so he was the guy who synthesised and imported the new hallucinogen from China. Uh, that's a really good book, highly recommended. It's not, not an academic book, but it really explains the history of these substances as well. So it's kind of thinking, well, you know, where have these drugs come from? And I'm sorry, this is a really poorly formatted, uh, uh, formatted uh, slide, because I use another software called Prezi, which is a very dynamic one, and it took me ages to construct this slide, and I couldn't, didn't have enough time to transfer it to PowerPoint, so I just did a screenshot. But if we have a, actually have a look uh, across the history of the availability of recreational substances, and what we, what we think of as modern drugs culture probably emerged, uh, at least in an appreciable manner with regards to policy and public health concerns, Late 60s, early 70s, we often talk about the, the psychedelic 60s in this country, but, but in reality we didn't really have a substantial drug culture until the 70s, particularly with the rise of the, the free festival movement. And things moved very, very slowly indeed. I won't go into too much detail, but in the mid-80s we came across the term designer drugs for the first time. This was mostly a US term, really focused on perhaps some new opiate drugs which were designed to circumvent the, the laws there. There was incidents around a, a chemical called MPTP which was associated with the onset of progressive Parkinsonium-like symptoms. And this kind of, set the, kind of set the tone around our concerns around these substances, that the majority of these substances probably don't pose much of a public health risk for many reasons, mostly because very few people actually use them. But like most drugs, you know, the actual risks and and harms are probably quite low. But once, once in a while, a drug comes along which can actually have serious consequences. 
the great uh, uh, US chemist Alexander Shulkin. Shulkin, he, uh, he produced two famous books, PCAL and TCAL in the 90s, uh, which described many different types of drugs based upon the structure of MDMA, ecstasy and, and LSD. Most of them were illegal anyway in the UK. But then something happened in the, the early 2000s. Whilst we had a slow emergence of different drugs up until about 1997-2000, suddenly there was a massive explosion in the availability of new compounds. Uh, starting with methadrone really, but there was other drugs such as BZP, TF, MMP, PMA and PMMA, which you might have read about in the news recently because unfortunately young people are dying after taking these two substances. But the drugs, these sorts of drugs, emerged rather perversely because of the successes of international drug control. There was a very active program in the Far East which was very successful at limiting the availability of some of the precursor chemicals to MDMA, ecstasy. So what happened is that uh, the producers, of course, uh, had their labs based, they still needed a profit or source of income, so they began to shift to produce other types of chemicals such as these here, but also as well methadrone. I think there was uh, a, a study done in the UK and Holland in the uh, mid-2000s where it showed that only about 20 or 30% of all ecstasy tablets on the streets actually contained MDMA. Most of them contain these other substances. Well, since then there's been no stopping the chemists. You know, I could reel off a massive list of the types of drugs which are available now and uh, I, I think if you would, if you considered the impact of, if you, you know, of, of the drugs market 20 or 30 years ago, it'd be very, very difficult to predict what would actually happen in now in 2014 with regards to the sheer diversity of drugs which are available. It's also complicated by the fact that, uh, uh, of course, we have these novel psychoactive substances which essentially mimic the effects of classical legal drugs, but we've also seen the rise of these so-called performance and image enhancing drugs. So this includes drugs such as anabolic steroids, growth hormones, but also drugs taken for cosmetic reasons. I know in the northwest of England we have an issue with a drug called melanotan, which is a synthetic tanning agent, uh, which unfortunately, particularly young females, have decided to inject uh, in order to get uh, 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 what, what, what they think is a more desirable skin tone. But of course, attendant risks of poor products, injection, sharing needles, all these issues, because this isn't a population which has been the target of needle and syringe programs or public health interventions. Uh, so, so, so it's, you know, it's an interesting topic, and this is one of the publications, a report that we did in our department, and it goes through a whole series of different lifestyle drugs which are not particularly psychoactive as you might imagine uh, with respect to classic illegal drugs but I think still fall into this, uh, uh, this the grand scheme of things and of course how the public society and politicians have reacted to the rise in these substances has been somewhat predictable uh, we have tabloid campaigns legal highs rectile lives uh, uh, yeah, zombie eating, uh, uh, base eating zombies in the United States, things like that. Uh, and unfortunately, that was a case of an, an individual who'd, who'd been excluded from mental health services rather than a drug user. Rather interesting, legal highs, reptile lives, 
I'm not trying to be disrespectful, <coughs> but of course, you know, is that a legal high in her hand for a glass of alcohol? Uh, moving to the more sensationalist aspect, this is one of my favourite headlines. Legal high made me run naked in Tesco's. You know, really picking on this sensationalist aspect. And I suppose it's easy to construct these straw men and say how ridiculous it is, but as we're all aware, politicians react to this. They have to react to this. And so you have uh, uh, rather, how should I describe it, rather ill-informed responses to these substances. And it's about tough language, it's about tough responses. Such a complex situation. Tough language and tough responses haven't helped us with regards to classic illegal drugs. They're not going to help us with the rise of these substances as well. Uh, lots of politicians, I think, trying to uh, make a big impact by calling for tougher legislation and tougher rules. It seems to be in each constituency an MP will initiate a campaign around this. But the controversy over these drugs isn't particularly new. Uh, this was quite a famous book way back in 19, published in 1935, which focused upon uh, the menace of new drugs, lifestyle drugs, one in particular, dinitrophenol, which was marketed as a weight loss agent. Use was continued because it was associated with increased risk of cataracts and hypothermia. Uh, but the language in the media used to describe it, I think we can recognize the language. People took it literally cut to death with sensationalist books written about it. Worrying thing, you can still actually buy this compound online today. So I, I suppose in some respects we talk about novel psychoactives as a new phenomenon, but it kind of really easily ties into societal responses to these substances. Okay, so what kind of drugs are available and should we be concerned about this? You might have read headlines uh, suggesting that a new compound is detected every week. Uh, and the European Monitoring Centre in Lisbon has an international early warning system. So it has centres in each country which collects information on this. So uh, uh, my team, we, we run the UK arm of this and report back uh, detections of new substances. As you can see, a massive increase in detections. So in the face of it, it, it does seem rather worrying, but you know, uh, I, th I think it's important to be quite cautious about this, that what we're actually picking up is detections of these drugs, and quite often they're just single item seizures. We're good at detecting them, and we have good evidence around them, but for the majority of these substances, we don't really have a lot of evidence that they're actually being used. So potentially people can get access to these compounds, but most of the seizures are single item seizures which might have been found on the shelf at a lab. Uh, increasingly the monitoring centre is including pharmaceutical agents as well. Quetiapine, which is an antipsychotic drug, is now considered a novel psychoactive substance. So I think it's important to put it into perspective that we, we're learning more about these substances, but it doesn't actually mean people are using them cut through that just to show that we've been looking at European data, high levels of use in some countries compared to others, uh, Poland, UK and Ireland, quite high prevalence, so this is 15 to 24 year olds, so this is lifetime prevalence. Uh, different countries have responded in, in very different ways. Poland and Ireland enacted so-called zero tolerance laws, so they uh, 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 shut down all shops uh, which were sold these products not really made an impact on internet sales. Portugal, which many of you are aware of, has quite fundamental and important changes in policy. Uh, they also have approached the zero tolerance approach, and the UK was struggling with what to do. 
And it really, the, the rise of these substances poses some tough issues and tough challenges to policymakers and, and uh, people interested in interventions. Because when you actually ask people what is the most popular novel psychoactive substance in the UK, well, the most popular substance is an unknown white powder. People don't know what they're taking. People don't know what they're buying. As researchers and people involved in forensic science, we don't really know what people are taking. So people are being fa are faced with these generic white powders, which are known by different names, chemical names, common names, brand names. But we're in the situation now because we don't have a very well-established testing program in the UK that people are simply taking generic white powders. Uh, gone are the days where people perhaps would know that, uh, you know, still with an element of doubt that they might be taking ecstasy or they might be taking cocaine or they would be smoking cannabis. People simply don't know what they're taking, which means formulating interventions responses to that is very difficult. I'm not going to focus so much on the epidemiology, but just to say, again, to reiterate my point, that most novel psychoactives remain intoxication curiosities, and they haven't displaced, I don't think, use of the classic substances, which again leads to the question, why is substance use in general decreasing? Okay, people have tried to estimate use through different types of techniques. This was an interesting study done in uh, Soho, perhaps the party capital of Europe, <coughs> where the researchers, they installed special research urinals on Friday and Saturday nights, <laughs> and then would go around collecting uh, the product from them, so it was in males only. <laughs> the best thing about this research That's is that it was cool. run by some senior consultants at a top London hospital, and because they didn't have funding for it, they had to go out and collect the urine themselves. <laughs> uh, I like that idea. <laughs> a whole range of substances uh, uh, detected. Uh, they originally saw this hordenine and thought, well, that's interesting because hordenine is a, is a product of psychoactive cacti, hallucinogenic cacti. And they thought, wow, what's happening here? We have this new drugs phenomenon until somebody pointed out to them that, in fact, this was a byproduct of uh, uh, brewing beer. So we didn't have this exciting uh, 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 situation. What is the impact? Well, what is the impact? I suppose the, uh, uh, the most extreme impact of these substances is death. Uh, unlike many other substances, we don't really know what the community and population health harms are. So most of the discussion is around death, of course. You know, I don't want to be dismissive again, but the number of deaths is quite low uh, with these novel substances. And sometimes I think the reporting of deaths related to these is not helpful because it perhaps suggests that these compounds are much more harmful than classic drugs such as MDMA. Uh, there's a lot of focus on these new compounds which is diverted attention I think particularly in harm reduction services away from classic drugs such as MDMA. You're probably much more likely to die from MDMA than you are from some of these other substances but that message often gets lost. Okay so what are we doing with regards to legislation and uh, I am mindful of the time so maybe we can have a few extra minutes, is that okay? Yeah, yeah. some question <laughs> time. Because uh, as, as you can tell, I'm really interested in this topic, but my talk is meant to be on legislation and policy, so sorry about that. <clears throat> so what about the sorts of responses that we've, we've seen put in place in the UK and EU? I think this is particularly interesting because at the discussion, discussion level at least, people are beginning to think about how to respond to these drugs in a much more sensible 
and a much more uh, creative and also evidence-based way than we have thought about classic drugs policy in the past. Uh, and I think this is quite clear through many of, many of the different types of policies which have been discussed at all different levels from uh, uh, the level of, uh, of users and retailers right up to the civil service and ministers as well, that people are actually considering these different types of policy uh, uh, responses, whereas traditionally it's been very much focused on the Misuse of Drugs Act, prosecutions, possession offences. So I think it's quite interesting that perhaps in one way the rise of these substances has provided us with a really interesting and uh, useful opportunity to think about how we respond to illegal drugs in general. I'm not going to go through all of them in, uh, in great detail, but perhaps some of the some some of the more interesting ones, and perhaps some of the ones which uh, uh, perhaps are, are getting more attention, is zero tolerance approaches. And these are sorry, a spelling mistake there. And these are blanket bans on anything which is psychoactive or is considered to intoxicate. Now, this is this is a policy which is very appealing to local MPs because if there's a perceived issue around head shops selling these products in the region, then they can say, right, we need policy like this, we'll close them all down, that will solve the problem. However, where this, where this sort of approach gets challenged is where uh, the psychopharmacologist and pharmacologist comes into it, and when you actually argue, well, what is a psychoactive product? A psychoactive product is caffeine. A psychoactive product is uh, 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 chocolate psychoactive product is caffeine pills, Pro Plus and things like that. So if you begin to introduce these types of legislation, then they also must also apply to lots of different products. Uh, so, you know, intuitively appealing, but I think you would find a hard time actually proving a case. Uh, interesting approaches with regards to regulation, and I'll, what one of the approaches I'll focus on is the New Zealand model. And it's interesting that uh, the drugs minister, Norman Baker, who's, who's a Lib Dem MP, who's the current drugs minister, he appeared to suggest in a, an interview a couple of days ago that he would be interested in looking at this sort of regulation of the sales and marketing of these products. Uh, and then the Home Office, uh, which is primarily uh, uh, run by the Conservatives, came out with a statement that, no, this wasn't going to happen. Uh, you know, it's interesting the fact that coalition politics are now having an impact on drugs policy and drug policy opportunities. Lots of locally enforceable restrictions. I'm not going to go through these, but it, you know, there are different ways that we can approach control and regulation of these substance, substances on a very local level. People have talked about community, uh, consumer safety legislation, so involving trade and standards, how they might get involved, an interesting approach. Uh, there's been uh, proposals at the European Commission level, which is almost along the lines of regulation, where they would do rapid risk assessments of new products, and they would take this graduated approach. And so through these risk assessments, they would only seek to control drugs which are considered moderately harmful. How you actually set the parameters of harm, how you actually define harm is another issue, but does suggest that there's a will, at least at European Commission level, to actually making some of these substances available, which is, to me, represents a radical shift in thinking about psychoactive drugs. However, again, uh, the UK government has already declared that it will opt out of this sort of uh, scheme, these sorts of regulations. It cites that uh, 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 this sort of approach isn't tough enough, 
and it, it, it also argues about uh, whether a European directive will, uh, uh, will hinder the UK in our own responses to novel psychoactives. The fact that the UK doesn't really have a comprehensive or cohesive novel psychoactives policy seems to be beside the point. Just want to focus on the New Zealand model because what they're actually doing here really is revolutionary. New Zealand drug laws very, very similar to UK drug laws. They have the ABC classification. The early 2000s, because they were faced with an issue with so-called party pills, so drugs mimicking the effects of ecstasy, they introduced the so-called Class D for uh, low risk, where they could actually do a temporary holding and then uh, still regulate the availability, control the availability, but do research and studies into the harms. That wasn't working, so last year they introduced this interesting licensing system, which has parallels with the licensing system for pharmaceutical products. And what they argued is uh, people could actually apply for licenses to sell novel psychoactive substances. So at the moment it's a new policy. I think there's around 20 products which have been licensed for use. So they're legally sold. Uh, it's temporary licenses. What's going to happen in a few months is it's going to enter the proper regulatory phase. So if people want to continue selling the substances, they have to apply for a license. They have to show through testing, which would cost a couple of million dollars. I think that's about uh, three quarters of a million pounds equivalent where they could actually show that these products which they've developed are of lower risk. Lots of discussions about what risk means or lower risk, but it's kind of a really interesting approach, uh, uh, which again suggests that perhaps there is a legitimate market and a legitimate uh, societal support for intoxication, which is a radical way of thinking about uh, these drugs. Some advantages, so it takes the burden of proof off governments because at the moment governments have to prove a substance is harmful before it gets banned. In this case, manufacturers have to do it. It could remove high-risk products from a legal market uh, because any product which doesn't have a license is, is banned, uh, quite severe penalties, so it allows some products through which are considered low risk. The industry pays for all the regulation, uh, which means that the, uh, the policy pays for itself. And they have argued that there's possibly substitution of some of these safer products, new products. What, what they're kind of hoping indirectly is people, if people start using these new substances, then perhaps they might move away from alcohol, they might move away from tobacco, and they might move away from the classic illegal drugs. Whether that happens or not, I don't know. I think probably people will lose, use them alongside those substances. It's really interesting that this is a this is a proposal from policymakers, and it's in New Zealand law at the moment. There are disadvantages, of course. These are just a few of them. So this is a policy which only applies to over 18s purchase. So there will still be an illegal market for under 18s, uh, and this is something which affects all regulatory systems around drugs, which have a distinction between children and adults, because. Uh, presumably under 18s also want to use these substances, but that, again they'll have to go onto the illegal market. Uh, some people have argued, well, if you have this licensing and risk assessment system, why don't you also apply them to other illegal drugs? Why don't you apply it to alcohol and tobacco? Why don't you apply it to cannabis as well? Interesting point. Uh, another thing, uh, just trying to summarise here, that I, you know, 
what is the what is the, the weight of evidence which is required to show that a product is of, of low harm or low risk? Do you focus on acute effects? Do you focus on long-term effects? If we look at, the, at our experience with alcohol, for example, we know that alcohol on a public health level has harms from everything from uh, uh, molecular changes right up to increasing the risk of road traffic accidents. But this is knowledge that we've only been able to accumulate over 40, 50, 60 years. These are products which are coming onto the market within about six months. So, you know, what kind of evidence can you get about harms with regards to that? And, of course, the black market of other drugs continues. I'm going to finally uh, focus perhaps on some of the intervention responses to novel psychoactives. And I started off this talk uh, bemoaning the state of affairs as I see it with regards to prevention and education in this country. And the same also applies to these substances. At the moment, we don't have any well-developed interventions. Uh, there's a few random, isolated, unique programs up and down the country uh, focused on talking about harms and risks and things like that. But you know, it's the, it's the same old, same old with regards to drug prevention and education. It is a waste of time in my, eye, in my eyes. It's not evidence-based and it's not delivered as part of a comprehensive prevention strategy. But whilst we're establishing what might work, I think there's actually some interesting harm reduction interventions that we can put in place. Uh, it's difficult to develop harm reduction because, uh, particularly around issues about the identity of compounds, you know, if users are reporting, well, we don't know what we're taking, we're just taking this white powder or this smoking mixture, how do you develop focused harm reduction interventions? And the response to that is to try and develop general strategies of response. To not really focus on individual compounds, but to really think about the drug use behaviour and repertoire in general. So some sensible advice, uh, so encouraging users to switch from novel psychoactives, which have uncertain risk profiles, to classic illegal drugs, which are still potentially harmful, but we have a lot more scientific uh, knowledge and understanding about service and preventative responses. That might be one approach. Uh, other sorts of systems, uh, on-site testing as they have across uh, several European states. Uh, this is whereby users can directly submit products either through community uh, collection points or in use environments such as nightclubs and pubs. Highly political controversial, been rejected several times by uh, the Home Office saying that it encourages drug use. Other European governments don't particularly take that point of view. Hasn't really been a lot of robust evaluation about what impact it has on use or harms, but certainly scope for a research programme there. There's no political support for this in the UK. There, there was a small pilot at uh, a, a big recreational programme called the Warehouse Project, which is a big big festival of uh, dance music which takes place in Manchester every year and there was a couple of high profile deaths there last year. So what happened was some very, very low key uh, interventions where uh, uh, researcher colleagues went in there, they did testing, uh, they, and the idea was that they would do some on-site testing of products and if any potentially dangerous products were identified then they would actually communicate this through the club. I don't think they quite thought out how they would actually uh, convey information about harmful products to 3,000 intoxicated patrons at 3 in the morning. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it kind of suggests that, yes, these sorts of approaches maybe have potential, but I think we need to draw in learning from 
uh, our understanding of other types of interventions, health education approaches, health psychology approaches. Again, it's not just an issue about giving people information about substances. What you actually do with that in information. And I really see these sorts of approaches as an opportunity, perhaps a brief intervention or referral. I think that's where the value, you know, you kind of attract people to come into the testing system on the, you know, with the carrot to find out what's in your drugs. But really, it's about what happens afterwards. Uh, and hopefully, those things will develop in the future. There is some central testing programs. This is run by the Welsh Government and they've got a small amount of funding. It's for the Weddiness Project, Welsh Emerging Drugs and Identification of Novel Substances Projects. And they, <coughs> I'll stick with Weddiness. So they've been granted a quite small grant, £100,000 a year, uh, where anybody can submit a product and it will be analysed by their chemists and the results put online. So leaving aside uh, uh, the fact that providing information itself is not going to change behaviour, but it does kind of suggest that there might be some kind of shared awareness of potentially harmful compounds that might emerge onto the scene. Uh, some examples here, so people thought that they was submitted something which they thought was methadrone, in fact it contained methamphetamine, very rare to come across that. Somebody thought that they had a hallucinogen called 2CB fly, but in fact it contained 2CE, MDAI, MDMA, and Zolpidem. Well, wouldn't like to take that combination. Uh, somebody purchasing something which they bought as party drugs, whatever that was, <laughs> and it contained mescaline. Well, and that's a pretty rare compound to find in the UK. Uh, we haven't really seen that since the days of old as a What is mescaline? It's uh, a synthetic hallucinogen, uh, uh, and it's the active component in peyote cactus. But it was the inspiration, you might have heard, of Aldous Huxley's uh, Doors of Perception. It's a classic hallucinogen drug. Hallucinogenic drug. We've not seen it in the UK for years and years. But I suppose my point is that you can actually implement a system, and you can identify, at least on a level of chemistry, what's out there. But the, you know, that's not enough. What do you actually do with this information? We're very good at analysing these products. We're not very good at communicating what this actually means. We're not very good at communicating this information and using it as a tool for intervention. I think that's the next step. Do they give it back? Uh, no, they're not allowed to well, give why it back. Would you send them? Uh, well, it, it, you'd, oh. you'd probably send a small amount of your products. A lot of the, a lot of the submissions are from uh, police and uh, A&E. Uh, a number of MPs in Wales have raised the concern uh, that it, this is quality assurance for drug dealers, uh, which might be true, but I actually think, so what? Uh, yeah. You know, from harm reduction perspective, I think knowing what's in these compounds is actually a lot more important mm -hmm. than supposedly encouraging drug dealers. And as I said, vast majority are from hospitals and police whose budgets for testing has been slashed, so no wonder they're using this. How has NPS been addressed in UK drugs policy? Well, we do, surprisingly enough, have an NPS action plan, and this is part of the 2010 drug strategy. And it does have some key objectives, uh, very broad and vague objectives, as you might imagine, to reduce demand by raising awareness of the harms. Good luck with that one. Make it difficult to obtain and supply MPS that pose risk to health. 
and ensure that statutory services are able to effectively provide treatment and recovery. So again, you know, good aims, good objectives, but we don't really have any understanding about how we actually realise these, how we actually deliver these. Uh, we find it difficult enough with classic illegal drugs. Uh, we're only really at this situation now, I think, where we're beginning to be able to deliver a comprehensive system of treatment, arguably, in regards to classic illegal drugs. It's very broad and vague objectives. Uh, the government says it's doing lots of different things, uh, uh, reflecting my interests in education and prevention. It's primarily focused on the Frank Information Service, uh, but that's woefully inadequate. First of all, it's funding has been slashed over the last couple of years and again back to my point that providing information about risks and harms doesn't change behaviour, it never has done with illegal drugs and it's not going to with these substances. And I suppose finally to sum up, uh, I've only uh, broadly touched on many of these topics but it's kind of interesting and uh, you know I, I talked about how I think the policy, the, the, the arrival, of these, arrival of these substances might actually pre pre uh, present policy opportunities. And we do have some international examples where they've actually come and developed some interesting and evidence-based policies to think about drugs in a new way. But actually, I, you know, I don't have a lot of confidence that we're going to develop sensible and forward-looking policy. And if we refer to discussions about drug policy in general, Alex Stevens and Fiona Misham published an addiction, the journal Addiction, an opinion piece quite recently about the drugs policy ratchet, basically saying or citing uh, commentators that scientific research on drugs cannot motivate a change from tough law to lenient law, but it can motivate a change in the opposite direction. Unfortunately, the signs that this is also happening, and perhaps we're missing this opportunity to develop some quite nice, rational, novel responses to novel psychoactive substances. If you look at the history of the Misuse of Drugs Act, uh, uh, most substances either go up in class, there's been a couple of examples uh, uh, where the drugs have been moved down in classification or been moved out of the Misuse of Drugs Act, well, we did have a drug which moved down in the classification system, cannabis, and cannabinol went down to class C in 2004. Political manoeuvring meant it went up to class B again. You know, it's, and our current the, the, our classification under the Misuse of Drugs Act is meant to be based upon science. It is meant to be based on research, but, it, it, you know, it, it does seem to be that uh, we're not taking this into account when we're developing our responses. And there's also been recent examples around uh, where government has explicitly ignored ACMD advice around substances, most recently around CAT, which the ACMD recommended shouldn't be controlled under the Misuse of Drugs Act, but the Home Secretary decided against that. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I'm an optimist, and I hope that we can move towards more evidence-based and rational approach to these substances. I was, I was rather encouraged when the Drugs Minister, Norman Baker, announced that there would be a major review of policy options in response to these drugs. And a panel was launched, a review panel was launched last week at a big conference in London. And it seemed very positive, but a couple of days later, there was a, a press announcement from the, sorry, a press release from the Home Office, basically saying that it already made up its mind that things aren't going to change with these compounds because of the, the same old issue that drugs are harmful, we shouldn't be encouraging drug use by not taking a tough line. Um, so, 
because a bit of my optimism has been chipped away. But then again, it's very easy for me to stand up here and criticise politicians and policymakers. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, McCoon in a, a, an opinion piece in addiction when he was talking about drug laws and the, uh, the, the nine implicit laws of evidence-based drugs policy. He added in an extra one that experts like to have it both ways. We hold the government to higher standards of proof than we apply to our own policy. So, you know, in that sense, I think it's important for me to recognise that there are lots of policy options and intervention options on the table, but we don't actually have a lot of evidence about whether these will be feasible, whether these will be effective or not. So even though I'm uh, very much an advocate for thinking about these drugs in different ways, uh, it's still very early days yet, about, uh, and it's not possible to make evidence-based decisions around them, I don't think. Okay, that's me finished. I'm sorry I went over, but I'll have to work on my timekeeping. Uh, please do contact me, email uh, on Twitter or via our society Twitter as well. So thanks very much.